0: This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com.
1: heard a little bit about how wisconsin is supposed to be the center of attention during the 2020 election season it has ended up being that uh in ways that we didn't expect it to be and ended up not being that in ways that we previously thought it would earlier this week we hosted a virtual cap times talk with two political experts who weighed in on what we can read into from the results of wisconsin's april 7th election and what we should be watching out heading into november David Weigel is a national political correspondent with The Washington Post and the editor of the campaign newsletter, The Trailer, and Barry Burden is a professor of political science with the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the director of the Elections Research Center. This discussion was first broadcast live for Cap Times members on Wednesday evening. If you're interested in participating in future events like this, you can check out our membership program at captimes.com. One more listening note, because this was broadcast live from multiple locations over... Not the most reliable Wi-Fi signals. We did have a few technical difficulties, but uh, we, we got past most of them. And I think it's a really great lesson. Behind, thank you all for, for being here. And, and thank you to the panelists. David Weigel is a national political correspondent for the Washington Post. He is also the editor of the campaign newsletter, The Trailer, um, which is, again, if you're not, if you like newsletters, email newsletters, you should definitely be subscribed to that. Um, It's got really great insights from the campaign trail, um, such as it is these days, but um, still pretty interesting stuff. And Barry Burden is a professor of political science with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he is the director of the Elections Research Center there thank you guys both for being here.
2: Glad to be here. Good to be here.
1: So we were going to do this um, a month or so ago before the primary and everything got upended. And, you know, a few months ago, a lot of us expected Wisconsin to be a key state in the Democratic primary. And at the very least, we thought we would be at the center of attention for having the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee this summer. And, you know who knows <laughs> what's going to happen there. Um, but but between that and looking at, you know, the Iowa caucuses, which um, were somewhat similarly disastrous, if you look at our election and, and what happened there. And and I'm wondering, if, as we look at these states that we expected to be in the center of attention and in a certain way and to be important in a certain way, does this signal a shift in the way that we view the importance of individual states during elections or, Do we just need to write this whole year off as an anomaly or both?
0: Well, I'd be curious to hear Dave's take as a national reporter. My sense is for the general election, we have a pretty good sense of the states that are going to be near the top of the list of interesting battlegrounds. And Wisconsin is at the top of every list I have seen. Uh, It's not going anywhere, no matter what happens with the convention, no matter what happened with the primary here. I think Wisconsin and two or three other states are definitely on the knife edge. All of the polling seems to indicate that. So I I don't think there's gonna be any pulling away of interest in what happens here. You know, as for the nomination phase, I think the mess in Iowa and disgruntlement among Democrats about having Iowa and New Hampshire go first is likely gonna lead to some pretty significant, you know, remaking of that process before 2024. Uh, Republicans tend to go along with whatever Democrats do to the schedule and Democrats are, I, I would say, pretty discontent with the demographics of those two states mm-hmm. going first and having such outsized influence and then the debacle there and the, the mess in Nevada that looked a little like Iowa but got less attention is uh, another symptom. So I think those, you know, that nomination process is likely to get turned upside down, but general elections, it's going to be right back here in Wisconsin.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, a lot matters on whether Democrats are operating from the white house next year or, or whether they're not, uh, if they are, it's, it's the prerogative of basically Joe Biden in that situation to say what the party's nominating rule should be. It's unclear, but he, he has not ruled out running for reelection if he wins. So it, there would not be a lot of attention paid to this in eight years. And if, if there, if this is not a win for the Democrats, I don't think you'll see the same primary calendar as it did before. I think you'll see the same place for Wisconsin. And honestly, um, Something I kept saying about Iowa in a lot of 2019 when people started to turn on it and ask why such a unrepresentative state, as far as the country, as far as the Democratic Party especially was concerned, why they went first. The argument was always, well, this is full of the kind of voters who decided the 2016 election, so we need to prove that our candidates can appeal to those sorts of voters. And the frustration with Iowa is it didn't really prove that. Turnout was basically a little bit up from. 2016 down from uh, 2008 uh, down pretty markedly in, in rural counties, proving that no, no Democrat was really pulling people back there. Whereas Wisconsin had more bright shoots, especially as you saw in, in the election a couple weeks ago. Uh, we'll probably talk about the conditions of that, but the fact that Democrats have a coalition here that gets them over the line. If they, uh, be, they win the biggest urban counties, they from suburbs, and they compete in rural areas that have not turned away from the party. Um, I mean, that makes Wisconsin a lot more interesting. You might even see a discussion of whether Wisconsin should go earlier in the process. And then for the general, yeah, there's look at the spending of the Trump campaign of the uh, not the Biden campaign just yet, but of the Biden allied super PACs. They're all in on this state. They're not going to give it up. It's seen as uh, if, if you do some some kind of modeling and look at which state is most likely to be the one that cracks 270 for somebody. It's always Wisconsin in the last year, just because of how not just the closest to last time, but because if you kind of move the dials on demographics. If Biden does slightly better than Hillary Clinton um, with just white vote, with white voters, period, by one point, then he would, he would he'd win Wisconsin. Everything else, run it again. He would he'd win the state. There's not another state you can really say that of, not even in Michigan or Pennsylvania. So it's going to remain uh, very important to the process.
1: Well, I mean, despite not having that competitive presidential primary uh, here in April, it was still a really high stakes election in Wisconsin, um, you know, certainly for local uh, races, but but definitely for the state Supreme Court. And there was a lot of attention on Wisconsin after all, because of the conditions in which the election was held. Um, so Dave, I'm curious, since you're kind of the, the, the national outsider here, what was the national perception of this? What Mm-hmm. What were you hearing, um, I guess, in, in terms of chatter in other places? And are, do you see other states or, or even the country taking away anything um, here that, that could have implications for the elections that are coming?
2: In- uh, you, saw, you saw a lot nationally. You actually saw Judge Karofsky wrote in the New York Times uh, this week, or in the last week, about what she thought was terribly wrong about the way the Wisconsin election was conducted and what shouldn't be repeated. Uh, you're going to see this state model uh, or, there's not going to be another elect- Well, there's the special election th- in, in May, but the not another statewide election until November. So, Wisconsin will get another test to, of what those conditions were, but it is kind of the canary for uh, leaders of states and pol- uh, legislators in states who are trying to kind of pandemic proof what happens in November. So, uh, I think it, it gave a jot of adrenaline to people who want expanded absentee voting. I think it's probably beyond the interest of, of Republicans in Congress to institute kind of Oregon or Washington style automatic absentee voting. But in terms of making an argument for people in other places, it was very tough for Wisconsin to run an election in, in these conditions. It's not clear what the conditions would be in November, uh, even with early voting, even with robust requests for early ballot, ballots, what you saw was just a, a overwhelming strain on the system that turns out just the paper absentee ballots are on uh, from that to getting things to people on time. You, you saw delays just based on manpower for people who'd requested ballots two weeks in advance. There are just a list of problems that, uh, and at the moment, Democrats especially are kind of ticking down saying, how do we prevent that in other states? And in every swing state we talk about, except, uh, except for Florida, where Republicans won the governor's race narrowly uh, in 2018, uh, Democrats have some role in the process. I mean, they have the Arizona Secretary of State they have uh, Democratic governors in, in every key Midwestern state. So they're, they're going to be part of this process. And I think Ben Wickler, the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, has already been evangelizing and sharing information with Democratic Party chairs. Um, the second question is whether Republicans in other states take some cues from what Republicans in Wisconsin did. And so far, they, 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 it hasn't been as dramatic, but they have. You've seen uh, Republicans in Pennsylvania trying to get ahead of the governor there and force the opening of businesses You've seen in Michigan, just today, Republicans uh, demanding uh, demanding a power in when the executive order would end, which is, resembles what happened in Wisconsin. So in terms of managing the pandemic, which is kind of a, a preview of how they might manage any election questions, you're seeing a lot of the same partisan divisions that you saw in this state.
1: Let tease us up nicely for the next conversation that I was going to ask, That I'd love for, for Barry to weigh in on a little bit, too, is... The, the differences between different kinds of voting systems that we're talking about now, um, the, the pushes to move to that Oregon-style vote by mail uh, universally to expand access to absentee voting, um, how much access do we expect to have for in-person voting, and is there space for meaningful conversations to happen about this, or do we think this is just gonna shake out on who, which, what, what each party thinks is gonna be best for them?
0: Well, there really is a continuum, and I would say Oregon is at one end. You know, Oregon is registering essentially everyone they can automatically through the DMV system and mailing all of those people ballots automatically a couple weeks out before the election. So the ballot serves as kind of a reminder, hey, something's coming up, and it's sitting on your kitchen table for some period of time. So they, you know, that, that model is, I think, unattainable or probably 40 or 45 of the states. It's just not possible to get there by November. But Democrats in particular want to see how far they can get by the time November rolls around. You know, in some places, not Wisconsin, but in some places there are really meaningful, productive conversations going on across party lines and elected officials acting in ways you would not expect from their party label. In Ohio, in Georgia, Kentucky, other places, you've got Republican governors or Republican secretaries of state pushing to mail out either absentee ballot request forms or ballots or do some kind of innovation like that, loosen up the rules for absentee voting. In some places, there are partnerships being formed between Democrats and Republicans to do this sort of thing. That's not the Wisconsin model. You know, there's so little cooperation between the governor and the legislature now that really everything is decided in the courts. We do policy making by litigation. And I think that's why the Supreme Court race becomes so important in Wisconsin. It seems more than just about any other state, it's near the top of the ticket. There's the governor's race, Senate races, the presidential race, and next in line for a lot of Wisconsinites is the Supreme Court race. And it's because so much of this gets settled there, whether it's the challenge to the governor's stay at home order, it's all the election law stuff, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful there'll be something happening here to try to make the system, the system more rational and work for voters. I think elected officials are going to hear from the local clerks, who, as Dave was saying, were just crushed by the volume of paper they had to manage, the lack of supplies, the tight timelines they had to work on. And that, that is one group that elected officials of both parties will at least, you know, have a conversation with and might lead to something helpful. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, A reminder for everyone who is watching this if you do have questions that you want answered to drop them in the chat and uh, Chris will filter them over to me and I will try to work them in as possible. Um, So, Barry, you get kind of called in a lot after elections here by reporters like me and and other folks to try to do a little bit of analysis of what went right, what went wrong. Um, So now that we've had a little bit of time to let the dust settle. um, Do you have any takeaways? What have we learned about uh, turnout? What about access? What did this election kind of look like compared to others with the um, conditions that were in place? And does it tell us anything that the Supreme Court race, the state Supreme Court race, really wasn't that close at all? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think there's definitely things that are idiosyncratic to this weird April election, but also some more enduring things. And I'm glad we got to see the Ohio election yesterday because that's the only other indicator we have during April. And it's another Midwestern state that did a lot of voting, almost all of its voting by mail. You know, the breakdown between the Democratic primary vote and the Trump primary vote was about the same in Wisconsin and in Ohio. There were more votes on the Democratic side than the Republican side because they're actually candidates running still sort of. They're on the ballot at least. So at least supporters of those folks, especially the Bernie people, can still get out and cast a kind of feel-good vote for him. So I think that's a lot of what was driving Wisconsin and helped Karofsky get over the top. Mm-hmm. And, Intentionally or inadvertently, the Sanders presence on the ballot, and remember he got out the next day or suspended his campaign the next day, really helped lift her just enough, you know, better than liberal candidates have done in previous Supreme Court races. So I'm not sure it's a great indicator for November. The turnout was really amazing in the middle of a pandemic to have a million and a half people out of about 3.3 million registered voters in the state show up, and a few hundred thousand of them in person went to the polls, despite all the messages, really from both parties, that they ought to be voting absentee if they can. In a weird way, it's possible that the stay-at-home process generated more interest in the election, at least where I was sitting at home. Aside from coronavirus news, the only other news in Wisconsin was about how the election was going to run, how are the candidates going to campaign, how are people going to cast ballots. And so lots of people, I think, were on their computers and just went ahead and requested the absentee ballot because it was easy and the message was everywhere. So, you know, in a kind of a strange way the the pandemic might've actually facilitated more voter interest because it was the only non Corona thing to talk about for a while.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think Democrats took a lot from the numbers. What, what I think they did get inspired by and did take a, as a, as a sign of, of something good to come was the success the Wisconsin Democratic Party had in organizing the absentee ballot operation. I mean, they basically had to do something that they, they know how to do. Parties know how to contact voters, chase them, ask them to return absentee ballots. Uh, but they turned a normal GOTV operation into that, into nothing but that. And they started it on March 15th, which had they started even a week later, I'm not quite sure the result would have been the same because of the time it took for people to get jostled into doing this. So... They learned something about their ability, at least in Wisconsin, and that Democrats did notice. I and mean, there, people talk about whether a Democratic Party is well-functioning, well-funded in the state, or it isn't. I and mean, Florida, kind of infamously, has had a shambling Democratic Party for a number of years. Uh, and Wisconsin's Democrats have were already leading up to this election, is seen as doing a lot of things right. So they learned from that. And the Trump campaign, as they, as Republicans did in the 2019 Supreme Court race. They were trying a lot of tactics about messaging, getting, getting higher turnout up. They didn't learn a lot. I think don't think they were terribly panicked. They were disappointed and surprised. I mean, for example, the Republican State Legislative uh, Committee, which has been funding a lot of judicial races, especially in Wisconsin, were kind of crowing about everything they did in that race, uh, about the legal judgments they won, and then they didn't say anything when the race went the other way. So they were surprised at the Democrats' campaign tactics, but I think that's the main thing people will take away. Uh, they're... Are, is going to be uneven turnout uh, throughout the rest of the primaries. This is honestly the first primaries we, we've we've had in the Democratic side uh, that ended early since 2004, the first on the Republican side since t- 2012. So turnout's not going to be huge. It's more about who has figured out how to navigate this new universe where you can't just walk around and beyond even canvassing voters, you can even sign up new voters. Uh, so that's what they took from it. Um,
1: I... I was going to ask this question myself, and it's come in from one of our uh, audience members, too, and, and that requires kind of a little bit of looking back on the last three state support Supreme Court elections. We went liberal, conservative, liberal again, and in very different conditions every time. Is there anything to be gleaned from that back and forth in those results?
2: I, I wish there was. was. Yeah. Yeah. You go ahead. For, you can go ahead. I have like my own take, but I might be repeating myself. So if you talk first, people will forget that I'm repeating myself.
0: <laughs> well, Dave's take is going to be smarter than mine. I don't have one. I they to me they seem like idiosyncratic events. You know, last year's race between um, Hagedorn and Newbauer looked like it was Newbauer's till the end. The spending was on her side. The party was together, and the conservatives were and Republicans were walking away from Hagedorn until that last week or 10 days. And then there was an infusion of cash and a kind of backlash to criticism he was getting about some of his past statements. And, that, and maybe overconfidence on Neubauer's side, I don't know. And uh, so that one was a surprise, but I think it could have gone the other way had that last minute activity not happened. So I think there's a lot of randomness in, this, in these spring elections. Turnouts are really variable and I, they're not a great indicator of what's gonna happen in November. Um, but maybe Dave can see something in there I'm not seeing.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And it's a important member of these races. It, the turnout went up each year, 18, 19, 20. Uh, the, the story of the 18 race was Democratic voters were very energized. Republicans were not. I mean, a story leading into those midterms, and really until the final t- uh, month and a half, was Republicans just didn't believe they could lose the House, and they were not excited to vote. They were not unhappy. They just weren't mobilized. Uh, in 19... I I was saying before, they used it more of as an experiment. How can we get people motivated? And they were sending out mailers to people who'd voted in Republican primaries or voted for the president in 2016, uh, saying this is a way, vote from the Supreme Court race. It's a way to get kind of revenge for how unpleasant the Kavanaugh hearing was. And that that moved in just tens of thousands of people, and that was the difference. Remember, that was a very close race. Uh, And this one, more of a test, but I think Republicans let expectations get out of hand by fighting so hard and and making it convincing Democrats, honestly, that if the election was held under these conditions, it was going to go their way. It was very slanted against them in terms of who the turnout was mostly going to consist of. But uh, so it's really the tactics I think that mattered from election to to election. That's the only thing I'd measure from the, from the conditions of these spring elections that always get lower turnout.
1: Before we move on to other topics, um, I've got a follow up question to Barry, you mentioned that the pandemic may have increased voter interest. Do you think that'll continue into future elections? Uh, Do you think this election cycle will change how parties and officials approach elections? Um, Or or perhaps more importantly, will it change how voters approach elections?
0: Well, there's a bunch of good questions there. Uh, I don't know what the pandemic's going to look like in November. You have to think it's going to be, there's going to be some loosening up from what we're experiencing today. Uh, Before the pandemic emerged, I would have said 2020 was going to set records for voter turnout. You know, sort of building on what Dave was saying, during the Trump era, we've really seen massive levels of voter engagement, lots of people running for office, including the governor's race here two years ago, where there were 10 Democrats on the ballot, and you know, the Democrats' presidential nomination where there were 25 or so candidates, So, and, and record high turnout in that midterm election not just in Wisconsin, but nationwide. It was the highest turnout in 100 years in a midterm election. So I would have thought that would have carried us through right through to 2020, and we might see something like 75% turnout in Wisconsin. The pandemic complicates that, and I don't know what the net effect will be. The kind of boredom and focus on that seems really specific to people being holed up very quickly in March and April, and the massive attention that was focused on the problems with the election some of that's going to be worked out by november um it's hard it's hard to say i you know I, I think we should expect a lot of voter interest i don't know what that will mean in terms of the turnout level we should expect
2: mm-hmm. yeah i think you said that everything was tracking for this to be a very high turnout election uh, the trump campaign and their allies would you just point to the the pure win number he would need uh to 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 win again based on who they've identified and I mean, they thought easily they could get 72 million votes if they, got, if they target everybody. There's a little bit of hyperbole there, but that assumed uh, basically the highest turnout election in a couple decades. Uh, so that was going to happen. It, it, and I think who falls off in this situation is going to be interesting, because there are some states where it's much easier to get absentee ballots as a, as a person who's 65 or older than it is if you're younger. You just don't need an excuse to get an absentee ballot. That's the law that people are trying to fight. At the moment, I think that that shakes off some younger voters. Uh, it, we saw in Wisconsin very low rural turnout. It was, despite you, some of the, you, you think people have the time to request absentee ballot, people in more remote areas did struggle to get the ballots sent to them. And I think that is going to suppress turnout in some way. And just the, the just the extra step. I mean, the extra step it, it takes. Uh, you've seen very high turnout in the states like uh, Oregon, Washington. Uh, in Colorado that already do all male voting. I, I I haven't actually been to Oregon during an election cycle, but I've been in Colorado twice and I'll visit a friend's house and yeah, you just have the the ballot on the table, like a, a report card or something that you know you have to deal with. Um, so if states modeled that, they might get to this kind of turnout we are used to, but I don't think you're going to hit it uh, in this way. And I think that's a lot of the Democrats job or in the Trump campaign is with some small, smaller allocation of resources, identifying just everyone who voted for Hillary Clinton and adding to that uh, is a lot harder than it was going to be.
0: You know, I think one group to watch in Wisconsin are young people, especially college students, because their lives got disrupted probably more than the average person in March and April. Many of them were on spring break or were about to go and their colleges said, don't come back. And so just at the time that they would get registered and request the absentee ballot, this was happening. And so they would have had to update their registration. They would need to request an absentee ballot that requires an ID in Wisconsin. Young people often don't have a driver's license or passport, but they will be back in November for sure. You know, that's one group that sort of bounces back, if nothing else, in a general election when there's a presidency on the ballot. So um, that's one group I think is, is likely to help out Dems in November in a way that they were not so helpful in April. Mm-hmm.
1: It's always the the mystery, right? What What are the young voters going to do? <laughs> I think you're right. That'll be probably more key than ever. Um, thinking kind of broadly about the the presidential field, um, you know, as as it was mentioned earlier, we knew that Joe Biden was pretty much going to be the Democratic nominee by the time Wisconsin's election rolled around. So that, was, that was pretty much locked up. But if we think back to 2016, Wisconsin was a really big state for Bernie Sanders. And it seemed like for months going into this election, that continued to be true. He was doing really well in polls here. Um, Biden was also doing really well, too. Um, does it say anything about Wisconsin or about the way that voters are going in general that Biden ended up Kind of taking the lead in the end and doing as well as he did, even when Bernie Sanders stayed on the ballot.
2: Yeah, I I think it it said a lot. The trends were being locked in a couple of weeks earlier. I mean, this was happening week to week. People were moving uh, towards Joe Biden, and there wasn't much movement away from Bernie Sanders. I mean, uh, I think without some of these conditions, the turnout might have been close to what it was in two thousand and sixteen, and Sanders tracked a lot lower. Uh, Sanders, I think, made mistakes in conceptions of the electorate uh everywhere not just in wisconsin although remember he he came to wisconsin uh very early in his campaign for a a bus tour that was meant to demonstrate how he had popularity in the midwest kind of ironic now uh it was sanders made the error of thinking that the coalition behind him last time could be mostly reunited and it mostly couldn't Uh, in wisconsin in 2000. Uh, 16, he won 71 of 72 counties. He barely w- lost Milwaukee County, and that was it. Turned out a combination of kind of slack interest in Hillary Clinton and also opposition to Clinton uh, from more conservative Democrats. You could see that in the exit polls; it was right there waiting. As well, I think as, as as a sentiment that well, Hillary Clinton. Was, this is Democratic voters thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway. She was going to be the nominee, so they could send a message by voting for Sanders. I think there were. A number of voters, it turned out, probably millions, who fit in that camp and moved away before this primary even happened. So Biden's strength was uh, unlike, honestly, what we've seen in some other contested primaries. It was much, it was much stronger. He ran well ahead of Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, he ran well ahead of John Kerry. Wisconsin basically ended the primaries in 2004. Uh, and it was a, a combination of basically people who would be comfortable voting for Hillary Clinton uh, most of Elizabeth Warren's voters, most of Amy is basically very electability-concerned Democrats. And across the demographic groups, there wasn't much evidence that he was getting people who might have sat out the last election. I mean, turnout was down. And he wasn't pulling in new voters from rural parts of Wisconsin, but he did very well there. And uh, if you're a Democrat who kind of waved off some of the 2016 primary results because Hillary won the nomination, that should be encouraging. We saw it actually again in Ohio – just this week, uh, that places that voted heavily for Sanders uh, broke very comfortably for Biden. There were Democrats who just were casting some kind of protest vote and decided that he's okay with it. So he needs more than satisfied suburban Democrats to win or uh, disgruntled rural Democrats to win. But he did a very good job of uniting them in part because Sanders did such a bad job reaching out to new voters.
0: Yeah. And I I think there's also a perspective change if you're a Democrat from having Barack Obama in office, finishing eight years and thinking, what can we get next (laughs) versus having Trump in office and thinking, what can we get back? Just, you know, sort of what your standards are or aspiration has changed. But I, I really think Wisconsin got in line with all the other states that had April and May and June events. Once that magic 72 hours happened around Super Tuesday, that was the most remarkable thing to see. Joe Biden, who had been fourth and fifth in Iowa and New Hampshire, really damaged, couldn't win Nevada either, go into South Carolina, run the table, and then by Super Tuesday, which was three days later, I think, it was over. You know, he, he, he just killed it on Super Tuesday. And Sanders had, n- had no path after that, it looked like, uh, unless Biden was going to have a, sca- a serious scandal at the time, to- you know, at that moment, or a health problem. Uh You know, I think the polls in all the succeeding states just flipped. We didn't have a lot of polling in Wisconsin at the time, but you could just see everyone get in line and now the votes are very predictable from that. So um, I hate to say Wisconsin was sheepish, but there was a kind of following of this national narrative that got set in that first week of March. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs.
1: I know this is far from the only reason that that Donald Trump did as well as he did in 2016, but when I think back to covering that election, just this indelible memory is just how many rallies in Wisconsin that I covered. I mean, I think eight, I think I covered eight Trump rallies um, leading up to the election and maybe one or two right after it. And as we know, obviously Hillary Clinton didn't come back after the primary. I don't think that's, I think we've, we've debunked the fact that that's, you know, that would be the reason why she lost. However, I'm thinking about the the importance of campaign campaigning on the ground. And that's obviously a strength for Donald Trump. Um, One would think that would be a strength for Joe Biden. as we move forward through the campaign with whatever, forms of social distancing we may have to implement going forward. um, Do you see an advantage one way or the other to that? Do you see ways to get around that um, to gin up the, that grassroots on the ground support that that we saw last time around?
2: Well, in this climate, I'm not quite sure. I wonder, I wonder what Barry thinks because that's, I was struck by the Marquette poll. Uh, One of the lower down results was asking people if they, uh, wanted the convention to proceed in person and the convention is going to be if it happens the biggest gathering of democrats in the state before before november uh, and people by a two to one margin at that time and this is about a month ago they said they didn't so I, I think uh this would be a state where if if the campaign perks up again and people can form gatherings this will be a state they come back to but I don't think that uh, the way we're going, the next six months are going to see that kind of activity. Even if, even if there's an all clear, you're going to see people just making con- conscious decisions about where they, where, where they go out that they might not have made if there was no, no virus. And then on top of that, I mean, Joe Biden's campaign, frankly, was, was not uh, driven by having gigantic rallies. It was never going to have the biggest rallies in the campaign. It was, it, he had, for you know, one of a better term, a silent majority of, of voters who followed it and liked him and wanted him to be the nominee, but were not necessarily in the the mood to drive to see him speak live. Uh, So it, it, it affects Trump much more than it affects Biden.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, in 2016, Trump had this advantage that he was on his jet and could go wherever he wanted. It was a very nimble campaign, really light in staff, so you could just touch down in Eau Claire, do a rally, and bounce on <laughs> to the next stop. And Hillary had this giant operation and wasn't great at doing rallies anyway. She also had to get off the campaign trail to go to fundraisers. So she would periodically step away and go to New York or California and have these events. Um, so that kind of trade-off won't work the same way in 2020. I think it does probably work to Biden's advantage. The campaigns will be creative. I, I don't know what they're going to do. There was, you know, the Supreme Court race here last month was actually really hard fought. Even though there weren't public events, as a voter, you knew what was going on. There was a lot of TV advertising, a lot of internet ads, a lot of social media stuff, and plenty of interviews, certainly with journalists and other places. So they were able to somehow get to the electorate, and the, the presidential candidates will do that, too. I don't think Biden's very good at that right now. He's doing these weird things from his basement that are like virtual rope lines and talking to donors occasionally. So that he's, he's going to have to be, I think, more aggressive and innovative there. But, you know, we're all figuring out how to do things in this environment. I think the campaigns will come to it, too. I, I just can't quite see what it will be.
1: Another audience question. Do you think it will matter who Joe, Joe Biden chooses for his vice presidential uh, running mate? And if so, how?
2: Mm-hmm. I think it will for a couple of reasons. One people don't like to talk about is that he, he would be the oldest person, either he or Trump would be the oldest person to win a presidential election. Uh, Trump by a couple of years, Biden by four more years than that. Uh, and there is a sense I've actually found, not a morbid sense, but a sense I found with uh, some d- d- voters who liked Biden voted for him, that they're voting for maybe one term of him and then there'd be a bridge to the future of some kind. Biden himself uh, in the run up to the final elections and super Tuesday kind of made this offhand reference to how he sees himself as the bridge and he'd point to uh, other people running for president and how um, that's the future. It's a nice thing to say, but it also I think was based in reality that he does see himself as somebody pulled back off the sidelines because he was the person with the best chance of winning this election. Now this is a guy who's won to be president most of his life, but, he, he does approach this race differently than he would have if he'd run 10 years ago. So the vice presidential choice is going to be somebody who has, a, I think, a better than usual shot. That's, that's a nice way to say it. This is a book, uh, you know, actuary race. Better than usual shot of being the nominee in some form uh, pre- pretty soon, right, in, the, in four years. And so for that reason, uh, I think despite the fact that Biden doesn't need to do it Barack Obama did, which was prove that he's got the experience, that's why he picked Joe Biden, um, Biden could pick somebody like a Stacey Abrams or a, a Kamala Harris or a Val Demings or some, somebody. Uh, Harris has you know, three statewide elections under her belt and a couple of jobs, but somebody who um, would be would not necessarily be seen as right now ready to take the presidency on. He could do that more than some nominees could. But it, that that idea is made more complicated by the worry that, you know, there might be a new a a a Democrat who's either going to run in four years, somebody who'd replace him as president. Uh, there's going to be more of a demand that this person be, be super credible, but there, are, he's already said that he's not going to pick anyone, uh, but a, but a woman, uh, and people in the Biden universe are, uh, cognizant of that Hillary Clinton made a choice in 16 of Tim Kaine, who did no damage whatsoever to her campaign, but did not, uh, excite new voters and did not solve the problem of exciting younger voters. Um, she could have made a choice. I think Cory Booker is honestly the, the politician I've heard the most, uh, actually for Sanders, but also for Clinton, where people are looking back at 2016 inside the party said that he was in the mix. He was being maybe vetted, but, and he would have been a more exciting nominee. Uh, so I think you're going to see when it comes to the names we hear most often, like your, uh, uh, your Amy Klobuchar, uh, your Harris's, you're, you're going to see when it comes to Klobuchar, a little bit of worry does this person add anything to the ticket? Um, Democrats have polling right now that has Biden up 10 in Minnesota without running with Klobuchar. So the idea that she'd add to it might not be there. But the idea that she'd be ready to be president, I think, is, is credible to people. It's, I think it's somewhat it's credible for Harris. Abrams is somebody who suffers on that, on that measure. But they, she would suffer on that measure because more than other races, people will look at the, the, the running mate and say, this is somebody who might be president. Before the end of the, you know, pre, well before the end of the next decade, or way before the end of this decade, it's <laughs> it's things are moving fast. And it's still 2020. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree with all of that. I think you know the old adage is do no harm by choosing a running mate. Tim Kaine did no harm, but he didn't bring much. And I think Klobuchar is in that mold. It's fine if he picks her. <laughs> it satisfies his requirement of having a female running mate, somewhat younger running mate. Doesn't it's not going to help him win Wisconsin. Yeah, because she's on the ticket. So I think younger and more energy and and a a potential president. Uh, So not a Sarah Palin, not, you know, out of nowhere, it's going to be somebody who's been in the conversation for a while. And I think the names Dave suggested are all, all going to be top of the list.
1: Sure. So Barry, let's talk about the Elections Research Center. Uh, You guys are polling, doing some battleground polling in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, obviously kind of the three major battleground states to emerge from 2016. Um, Tell us a little bit about that effort. What are you guys hoping to learn from the the three polls that you're conducting in in those three states?
0: Well, we thought these were the three interesting states before this all started, because they (laughs) were part of the blue wall that seemed impenetrable, but then flipped obviously to Trump. 80,000 votes between the three states. So they're the three that we're watching this year with several waves of polling. The first wave was back in February and we'll, we'll keep it up through November. Uh, unlike the Marquette poll, which is our gold standard and we all love, we don't much care about public policy and uh, you know concerns of particular parts of the state or uh, pet topics that sometimes the Marquette poll uh, lets us learn a lot about. This is straight up interest in what voters are thinking, who's going to participate, How do they get to their decision? How do we make sense of the fact that a place like Wisconsin seems so perfectly balanced between red and blue areas that you you get this purple mix? And, you know, what factors will it be that end up deciding the outcome? So I think there are key questions that probably all of us have about what rural voters are doing and whether they come back to the Democratic Party to some degree, about young people who I mentioned before, African-American voters get a lot of attention and Wisconsin as being a, a kind of variable turnout group and really important to the Democrats. Um, with COVID in the mix, I can't say what the questionnaires are going <laughs> to look like for the future waves of the survey, um, but we think these three states are just really key places to really understand where America is going to be going.
1: Do you have any thoughts that other states, you know, surprise states may emerge as, as battlegrounds coming out of the 2020 election, or is there just... Is it it too soon to even talk about that?
0: No, I think there are a couple on the table that I would have not thought were on the table a month ago. Florida and Ohio are, you know, traditionally like the key, the swing states. If you were going to make a movie about a swing state, it would be set in Dayton, Ohio. Um, But they have been trending in the red direction the last few years. And I would have thought would have been fairly safe territory for Trump. Um, But because of perceptions about his handling of the virus, and uh, among older voters in particular, they both look like they're back on the table. Uh, There are other swing states, I think, like Iowa, that would have been a swing state in previous years. It's very swingy still, but to me it looks like it's a little further out of reach for the Republicans. So there are places that are coming into view for Democrats, Georgia, Ohio, Florida, that I think we would not have seen A while back whether they stick there through november i think is still pretty unclear
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's pretty malleable i mean campaigns make investments and pull them back Uh, they hate bidding if they're pulling something back uh you have seen that the big super PACs for biden have not been buying in ohio uh i don't think they'd revisit ohio until things change and again this is a lesson they they think they learned from the clinton campaign is that um the clinton campaign basically left its flank unprotected because it had an ambitious plan to expand the map. It got you know, very close to it. It got very close to winning Florida, very close to winning Arizona. And basically, I mean, Florida, Arizona, and, and Michigan, even if they lost Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, that would have been the election. They would have won with that. Um, so, but they didn't scale back to the core states, until, and they didn't actually abandon Ohio. So there was actually a New York Times story, a month before the election, by Jonathan Martin, very accurately, presciently explaining why Ohio, for demographic reasons, was kind of falling off of the map, and the Clinton campaign never stopped investing in it, uh, not as much as they did in Pennsylvania, but, you know, they sent the candidate there, they had a rally with the Beyonce, they had a bet with LeBron James, and it was time that, uh, I, you know, you don't need to be in the state again, again, again to win it, I mean, Pennsylvania being a great example with Hillary Clinton going there a lot and losing, but there was thought among Democrats that as she just canceled her final week, Ohio and Arizona rallies and stumped in, um, in not just in, in Grand Rapids and Flint, not in Detroit again, uh, that she could have helped. So they're a little more protective and you're not seeing the same investment because if they look at the map, they see a situation where if they win all the Hillary States, plus um, a combination of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, that half of those, they win. They feel very good about Michigan. They feel re- very good about Pennsylvania because of Biden's roots. And just polling there, he's led outside the margin of bearer all year. Um, and they feel uh, about equally nervous for different reasons about all the other states I mentioned. But when one of those other states and they win the election, that's how they're approaching it. Um, that You'll hear the phrase tipping point that all those are tipping point states and Ohio and Iowa are not anymore. Uh, they There can be a decisive joe biden victory about the scale of barack obama's victory in 2012 without those without uh, iowa without ohio i mean frankly just the way that uh John trump could win the presidency without virginia um without places that uh, without minnesota without places that have shown some republican leg in the past and virginia especially sometimes states fall off the map
1: i going to pepper in a few more audience questions as we approach the end of our hour. Um, if there is an in-person convention in Milwaukee, does the Democratic platform get pushed to the left by a Sanders contingent of delegates?
2: Uh, I can start a little bit with that. It's already a fairly left-wing platform. Uh, there's kind of a bickering among Democrats about how much they should say this because even a lot of Sanders supporters don't believe the platform was that left-wing that I covered it in 2016 pretty closely going to platform meetings. They, the Democrats moved uh, very far in immigration, on marijuana, on uh, minimum wage. They're, they're in favor of a, a much more liberal set of policies than they were in 2008. I mean, it's something I always do almost for fun, but it, it is um, party platforms which do not bound the, camp- the campaign if they win to their agenda. It would not bind them, I should say. Uh, they're, they're still revealing because there are a couple, 150 humans basically who meet in a room and say, this is what the party should stand for and what we can run on without trouble, and it's been moving to the left. So it's prob- they're probably heading to a pretty left-wing platform already. I think uh, a, a different nominee uh, and Elizabeth Warren would shape that platform uh, or Sanders and say, you know, legal- we're going to legalize marijuana, we're going to have an immigration deportation moratorium. They move it further to the left, and what Bernie Sanders is trying to do in this very awkward position of being a former candidate but not taking his name off the ballot unless he's forced to like it was in New York uh, is get just enough delegates so that um, if if there is a platform change or if there is a close vote over change uh, over ma- moving to the to the left they can go to the floor of the convention or the virtual floor that might exist and challenge that and have a vote of all the delegates, because there's, there's the platform committee that meets, and then there's the entire convention. Now, the delegate pool is going to also not be mostly Sanders people, it's going to be mostly Joe Biden delegates, uh, but they, they like their, their odds, and in 2016, there were platform debates where the Sanders people proposed an amendment that was further left than Hillary was going, and it, it would pass. Just 20-odd Hillary delegates to the, the platform committee would vote for it. I remember marijuana decriminalization being one of them, that That was not something she ran on. It's something that a lot of Democrats now think she should have run on. It would have excited people and the delegates got it through. It's, it's, I find it kind of fun, even though it's, it's a strange experience to live through because everyone pays close attention while it's happening, while saying it it doesn't matter. And it it actually kind of, it actually kind of does because it reveals how much they think they can get away with how much they can run on because that, that is a good barometer of what they might try to pass in Congress.
0: Now, Dave can correct me if I've got this wrong, but I think Sanders has already done most of his work between 2016 yeah. and 2020. You know, the AOC wing of the party is, is ascendant. And so th- they've taken the party in a direction, you know, $15 minimum wage and um, legalizing marijuana everywhere. Those are things that would not have been talked about four years ago or eight years ago. And, you know, the delegates that Sanders will have will be so much fewer in number this time than four years ago. Even the places where he's already won votes or won what look like delegates in these early states, they're going to be frittered away as local conventions happen in the states. So he will not end up with as much as it looks like he has now. And then because so many states have pushed their primaries and caucuses to May and June, he's going to, he's more of a footnote the further on you move in that calendar so I just, I think his presence at those meetings and at the convention is going to be so much less than it was four mm-hmm. years ago. Um, he doesn't have another campaign in him, I wouldn't think either. So kind of his future as a person in the party is going to be downplayed. So I don't. my sense is there's just not a lot of potential for that platform to go much further left.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of the ideas that he ran on that Biden utterly rejected, like Medicare for all along his lines, that's not going to happen. I think Sanders delegates plus some other people could say the goal is a single payer system. They're just, there's language that they're going to fight over. Uh, But Sanders is even going to, if he was the nominee, he was going to face a fight in getting the party to run on some of that stuff. So he's, I'd say he's moved the party pretty definitively as far as he was in 2016, not as far as he was in 2020. I mean, I was, I wrote about all these. He would sometimes endorse a very left-wing position, because he was a candidate who was basing um, a lot of his thinking on activist energy, grassroots organizing, and he endorsed an idea, for example, like um, letting felons and letting everyone vote no matter if they're in prison, no matter if they've committed murder, name your crime. Um, That is an interesting uh, public policy uh, debate. Uh, There's a lot of people who make the case morally that everyone should be able to vote. The Constitution doesn't say otherwise, but that was, he piled on a bunch of ideas that I think might get introduced as amendments, but Democrats will look at it and say, "This polls negative twenty, negative thirty. We're not going to do it." That's not what they think of his other ideas. I mean, the fifteen dollars minimum wage. Biden started his campaign endorsing that. Hillary Clinton never, never endorsed it.
1: We're coming in the under ten minute mark, so I'm going to try to squeeze in a few um, to get a couple more uh, reader questions in and and get us close to wrapping up. Um, So I'm going to kind of combine two that are about outside forces. Um, How much could Justin Amash's campaign hurt Biden running as a libertarian nominee and how much might Biden be hurt by these uh, sexual assault allegations by his former staffer?
2: Mm. Those are two, two questions. I mean, Barry, do you want to take it? I can, I can take it too. but I just talked a lot.
0: Yeah. They're two different questions. Um, Amash is a little hard to game. He You'd think being a libertarian would draw from conservative voters who are a little discontent with Trump, but that's not exactly what Gary Johnson did four years ago. Mostly, they win the vote, these third party candidates win the votes of young voters who aren't really attached or people who are disaffected. Now, four years ago, Trump was the guy who got the disaffected vote because he was anti Washington and Hillary was Washington and he was going to drain the swamp. And so, you know, he's in a different position now as the incumbent. And um, I don't know that I don't know that we can say exactly what the net effect of these countervailing forces is going to be. It, it, it probably, in the end, takes a little bit off Biden's edge um, to have a mosH in the mix if he's actually on the ballot as a libertarian candidate in, in all the states. Um, as I say, it's a, it's a little hard to say. I think the Republican Party has been remade under Trump as well, and the libertarian interest is not there in the same way it would have been at the end of the Bush years. Um, what was our second question? We had an Amash question. and Yeah,
1: sexual assault allegation again. Sexual
0: Trump. assault, yeah. Biden is fortunate from a news cycle perspective that this is happening while the coronavirus pandemic is dominating. You know, all, all of us are attentive to the stories. I think most of the public is not. So whether it ends up damaging him, I think depends on whether it has legs beyond as, as you know, the economy begins to open up and people begin to look, to other things besides COVID-19. I think it's unclear, The the reporting sometimes is really supportive of her allegations and the corroborations, but then there's some pushback. He has not pushed back much directly. He said nothing himself. At some point, he probably has to address that, so the way he does that will be a factor. But I think also just the time, the sequence of things, when that comes back to the surface, whether there's some air for it to get some sustained media attention as a top story, or whether it stays as kind of a page three or four kind of news bit.
2: Yeah. And I think the two issues are intertwined for the reason you just touched on, which was young voters. Uh, I, so thing about Joe Biden is that he has been a public figure since the early 1970s. It's a huge advantage for him, especially in this election, in this election, because there's not the, you can't get the candidate known the way you used to get him known by rallying around the country. And he also has, he has a very strong personal brand as somebody who survived family tragedy and who has never up to this moment, I'm not trying to be his lawyer, but has never up to this moment been accused of anything like this. I mean, there are senators who had this reputation. He was, he was not one of them. So I'm, I'm curious to see maybe in a week, maybe two weeks, if there are polls on this issue, you might find that voters um, who are not already inclined to dislike him are skeptical that, th- that this happened, especially if there's not another accusation. Um, even for all the reporting, we've seen this before. We saw when, when Biden was um, uh, accused by a number of women and some with video of just being kind of handsy and creepy and invading their personal space and making them uncomfortable. There was polling on whether voters thought that disqualified him and by a very large margin, they said no. Um, There was polling during the Al Franken scandals in Minnesota, and this is a more Democratic-leaning state in the country is, but not by a lot. Um, And voters, by and large, uh, I think the... uh, I'm going to... I want to quote the number because I might get the number off by one. But there was a plurality at the very least for let there be an investigation versus he should resign right away. So I, I can see Biden getting into a model. This does hurt his, his what his branding was. If you watch a lot of the primary ads in, in, until this the super Tuesday until things were winding down, uh, he leaned very heavily, not on Trump as a bad person, but on a, he is, a, he is a good one the, the pictures of him hugging people, uh, his reputation. So he starts with, I think more uh, capital, been a lot of people who've been accused in the same way and i'm not prejudging anything that will happen i'm just saying we've seen how accusations like this play out over time and that that's where amash comes in i think the people most inclined at the moment to believe something about biden people who don't who only know him as the guy from the last few years of the obama administration uh, voters under 30 i think those are the people who'd be the most interested looking around at a third party option like amash but he's different than gary johnson johnson do i talk i talked to last night and he's very happy that Amash is in the race. Every Libertarian's happy that he's running because they had no good candidate without him. Um, but he's very pro-life. Uh, he, he voted against the Voting Rights Act restoration. I mean, he just has a much more conservative record than Johnson does. Johnson ran as a kind of pro-choice centrist that is maybe how, um, not the pro-choice part, Amash, I think, will present himself as a guy who building a bridge between the two parties, but is not going to have that same reputation. So you might see him, if people can go back to college campuses, I think he's the kind of person who get a big interested crowd, but he's not going to have people nodding along with what he says the same way as some other people. And he runs the risk of a lot, like a lot of libertarians, of running on fiscal austerity and let's live with our means, which isn't popular even when Republicans do it, and has never been popular with a third party. Um, so both of those, I think I want to wait two weeks and see how they shake out, both factually and in, in polling.
1: Uh, okay, so we ha- we have... Two minutes left. So with two minutes left, I will ask you both, um, we've and you've kind of alluded to this throughout the night, but as we move forward, whether it's elections research or campaign coverage, I mean, Dave, a huge part of your job is just traveling throughout the state and and being on the ground and talking to voters. For each of you, uh, what are you watching looking forward and how does this new reality change the way that you are approaching your jobs?
2: Uh, well, for mine, quickly, it's that, yeah, I'm not traveling as much. I went to Ohio this week uh, to look at their election, see how it was going. Uh, I'm going to travel less than I have in previous campaign cycles, I think. Um, but And I'm really looking more than I usually am for the story of how the election is conducted. And, and I think that's going to be incredibly important, not just for voters' awareness, but for what voters get to be aware of, what the rules end up being. I think that's just going to be a bigger part of this election than of anything probably since the 60s.
0: Yeah, I think litigating the rules of the election, especially how absentee voting is going to work in the fall, is a huge issue for us to watch. From a polling perspective, it's actually easier to do a survey now because people are at home and they are desperate (laughs) to answer questions. (laughs) So response rates to surveys and the quality of the feedback you get is better. Um, You know, it may be that voters are actually more responsive to campaign advertising and outreach from campaigns if, if this persists. So watching the innovations the campaigns come up with and how to find people at home, I think will be a great story to keep our eyes on.
1: Great. Well, this has been fun and informative. Thank you both uh, for joining us and for sharing your insights. Thank you to everyone who signed on and watched and thank you for um, asking your questions. I, I think we got to most of them. I'm sorry if we didn't get to yours. Um, this will be on, I think, YouTube tomorrow. It'll be online um, in my Wedge Issues podcast later this week, so you can find it on all of those places. Um, you can follow Barry's work at UW. You can follow Dave's work at the Washington Post. Oh, my God, my Wi-Fi died again. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I don't know where I cut off, but um, find us, get in touch, let us know how this went, uh, minus the technical difficulties. We can't control that. but. Um, Appreciate all your feedback and your support, and um, just happy to connect with you all in this strange new environment. And since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming home. Come home today. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopi, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. Keep an eye out for future virtual Cap Times talk events, most of which will be even better to experience if you are a Cap Times member, which you can learn more about on our website, captimes.com. While you're there, you can also check out our other podcasts like the Mad Splainers and the Corner Table. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.